Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 872 as we study God's Word together. Uh, Since the beginning of December of last year, we've been working our way slowly but surely through the Gospel of Luke. And just last week, we kind of reached the tipping point into the second half of Luke's Gospel as we completed chapter 12. And this morning, after a few weeks of taking 25 verses at a time, we just have nine simple yet significant verses that we want to look at as we look at the first nine verses of chapter 13. So let me get us going by reading that text for us, and then I do want to pray for God to bless our study of His Word, and then we will begin. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to you this morning, right now, through His Word. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's word? The grass withers, hours fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Now, Father, we do thank you that your word is perfect, that it is pure, that it is righteous, that it is holy, that it is even saving. And so, Father, as we come to these simple Yet striking words of Christ this morning, we pray that you would indeed give us a heart of repentance, that we might turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can save us from the judgment that our sins deserve. So help us to hear with eagerness for the truth of your Spirit. Help us to hear with hearts of joy for the gladness of salvation that Christ offers unto us. Help me to preach as your word says I must, boldly, Clearly, aware that I preach as a dying man unto dying people, unsure as to ever preach another sermon. Help us to hear this message of repentance, knowing we're not promised even to hear another sermon. So do these things for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When Martin Luther, that great reformer in 1517, nailed his 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, he did so with an opening salvo that said this, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he said that repentance was to be the entire life of Christians. And so it's not surprising that what you get in the subsequent decades and subsequent centuries even of the post-Reformation teachers and preachers is a central emphasis in their ministry on repentance. It's why even... John Calvin would say, God assigns to believers a race of repentance, which they are to run throughout their entire lives. 
Psalms. One of the most popular and prolific Bible commentators in church history was a man named Matthew Henry. And his father, Philip Henry, said, If I die outside of the pulpit, I desire to die practicing repentance. But if I die in the pulpit, I desire to die preaching repentance. And his great little booklet on repentance, a Puritan named Thomas Watson said, It is only on the streams of repentant tears that we will row towards paradise. Or he even said, more strikingly even to our text, knowledge without repentance is but a torch to light man's way to hell. Knowledge without repentance is but a flashlight to guide us to eternal judgment. And what we must know this morning is that this centrality of repentance in many of our spiritual forebears' ministry is nothing less than just a simple, glorifying reflection of the centrality of repentance in Jesus Christ's ministry. Because if you want to keep your finger in Luke chapter 13, flip around with me back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, just because I want to show you what we've seen already so far in our study of Luke's gospel, about repentance. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 16, uh, we find that John the Baptist is going to come, and his father, Zechariah, prophesies, verse 16, that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That language of turning is a language of repentance. And then if you flip over to chapter 3, verse 3, you find out John the Baptist has actually shown up. And what's his ministry all about? If you were with us months ago, maybe you remember this text. And he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Flip forward to chapter 5, verse 32. When Jesus shows up, what does he say? He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We saw even a few weeks ago in chapter 10, Jesus talks about these cities, Bethsaida and Chorazin, and woe upon them because if they had been right in their response to him, they would have repented of their sin. And even these pagan dens of iniquity so long ago, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented if they had seen the majestic demonstrations of Christ's power in their midst. We're going to see repentance again in our text this morning. But flip all the way to the end of the book, chapter 24 in Luke's Gospel. And look at verse 47 through 48. Christ's final words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. What are they commissioned to do? Look at verse 47. He says that they should preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in my name, Jesus says, to all nations. So it is right, and it's even necessary, for us to see that the First, and the final word of Jesus Christ is repent. And it's a central feature of our text this morning. Because once again, it's a declaration of Jesus Christ. It's an announcement of Jesus Christ that says there are but only two ways that you can live. And in our text, those ways are you can repent or you cannot repent. You can repent and live or you can not repent and perish in God's eternal judgment. And so the simple point that we're meant to see this morning is Jesus' call to remind us that repentance is the only way you can escape His coming judgment. Repentance is the only way that anyone can escape the coming judgment 
do for our sin. So we're thinking about repentance once again this morning. So kids, what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? Well, maybe your parents have trained you in the catechism, and you know an answer that sounds something like, what is it to repent? Well, it is to be sorry for sin, to hate it and forsake it, because it's displeasing to God. You can even think about the word in terms of its etymology, what it normally meant in Greek. It talks about a changing, a turning. It's a changing of mind and heart. And a, that leads to a changing of life. If you want to put more words into it, it means a repudiation of sin that leads to a redirection to the Savior. It's in a total about face in your spiritual life. And students, I want you to see again this morning how Jesus reminds you, as he's already done in this gospel, that repentance is not just a one-time profession or confession. It's meant to be an entire life in him who is your Lord. And maybe you're even visiting with us this morning and you're trying to learn more about Christ. And I want you to see from Christ's very own lips this morning the utter primacy of repenting of your sin in order that you might live. And so what we want to look at this morning in our text is just two simple headings for our nine verses. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see Christ's call to the necessity of repentance. Verses 6 through 9, the necessity of evidence. The necessity of repentance, and then the necessity of evidence. Before we get to verse 1, you just scan your eyes to the end of chapter 12, where we left off last week. It was a rather long section of teaching that we covered last week from Jesus Christ that all focused on his coming return. And we said that coming return is going to be certain. So it's going to happen. But also it's going to be sudden, like a thief in the night. So Jesus' call unto us was a call unto readiness, unto faithfulness for his return. For you'll even notice in verse 49, he says, he came to cast fire on the earth. And he has this divine frustration until that judgment is accomplished. And so what's right is for his people to be ready. And what was hinted at last week is now on full display in our text today. What does it mean to be ready for Christ's return at its most basic form? It means being ready with a repentant heart. So we want to see, first of all, in verse 1 through 5, the necessity of repentance. For look what Luke tells us in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So it seems like we're still within this long day of teaching, this, this long series of instructions of Jesus Christ on one day that stretched all the way back to the end of chapter 11. And after he's given his instruction on his coming judgment and his teaching about the judgment that is indeed on the way, the crowd interrupts and with this breaking news headline, hey, did you hear about the Galileans whose blood was spilled among the sacrifices? And for years and years, scholars have tried to figure out what event was mentioned to Jesus here in our chapter. We really have no idea. We, we have more knowledge about Pilate, this governor, this ruler in Judea, and that this mingling of innocent people's blood with sacrifices would have been totally keeping in his character. He was ruthless. He was often in temperament that would lead to bloody violence against his enemies. And what we should also see is in all likelihood... What's happened with the spilling of these Galileans' blood is it happened during Passover week. Because it was only during Passover week that laymen, Galilean or otherwise, came in to offer sacrifices. So for un some unknown reason, maybe it was legitimate, probably with Pilate, it was illegitimate, 
These people were executed as they were offering sacrifices and their blood spilled forth and mingled with that of the sacrifices. And so people have often wondered, what is it about this event that caused the crowd to mention it to Jesus at this moment? Was it just kind of like this ticker tape headline that they had just seen and they're just passing along the breaking news? Uh, One scholar I read this week thinks that it's probably likely that what they're doing is speaking about this event as some sort of tacit approval of the kind of judgment Jesus has just been talking about. So what does Jesus do in verse 2? He sees right through it. Because look what he says. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? It was... It was common, a common conviction at the time that when someone went through profound suffering, profound affliction, even tragic and calamitous death, it was simply the result of God's judgment upon their sin. That even the Jews believed that when Galileans went through such affliction and suffering, they deserved it because they were worse than everyone else. And it's a truth that you even see that was present in Jesus' disciples. You may remember the story in John chapter 9 that Jesus and his disciples come across this man that was born blind. And do you remember what the disciples asked Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Or you get it all the way back in the book of Job, this retribution theology of Job's friends. They look at his affliction, his pronounced suffering, and they say, Job, there's clearly something you've done wrong. You've sinned against the Lord in some way because that's the only explanation for what you're going through. And so when Jesus says, do you think these Galileans were worse than the others because their blood was mingled among the sacrifices? The crowd would have said, yeah, of course that's the case. So we always have believed. But look what Jesus does in verse 3. No, I tell you, that's wrong. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I recently came across a rather cynical study of pastoral search committees in evangelical churches in America. And this author said that if you wanted to summarize the average pastoral search committee process in our country, it's little more than a group of people trying to find a man who with uncompromising force and fearlessness will declare to that people exactly what they want to hear. And maybe your experience in churches passes, that actually is quite true. But if it is quite true, we would thus want to know that Jesus would not be welcome at many a pulpit in our country because he never comes to preach what men want to hear. He comes to declare what they must hear. Because people have read verse 3 and verse 5, often in Jesus' ministry, say, hey, this is a quintessential example. This is a perfect test case scenario for how cold this Savior is. Just hard-hearted in his judgment. People are just brutally murdered. Why doesn't he give comfort? Why doesn't he give care to those? Instead, he just turns it around and says, it's going to happen to you if you don't repent. But the point is, it's going to happen to you. If you don't, repent. So students, what you want to think is Jesus is wanting to do something with your index finger in this passage. Because our tendency is to do what when we hear such striking declarations in preaching? Who does that belong to? Who can I tell about that sermon? Oh, that person over there at the end of the row, I hope they're listening right now. What does he want to do with this? So turn it around. It says, no, what is right 
You turn it back in on yourself to examine your own state before the Lord. Because don't you know it is true how easy it is to decry a thousand sins in other people and never kill one of your own? How easy it is to be much more affected by tragedies outside of you than to be affected by the sin that remains inside of you? Unless we miss the point Jesus is making, unless they missed the point Jesus is making, he makes it again. Look at verse 4, just with a different tragedy. Or those 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, the, the general sentiment of the people listening to Jesus would have been little more than, yeah, of course they were worse. That's why they died in this tragedy. But just as he did with Pilate's executions or, or murders, whatever that situation was, he doesn't sentimentalize the event. He spiritualizes it for his hearers in their application. Because again, look what he says in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is a necessity of repentance. You must repent to escape the coming Judgment. So why is it, according to these first few verses, that repentance is necessary? So kids, why is it necessary, Jesus says, to repent? I just want to give you two things from verses 3 and 5. First, repentance is necessary because man's sin is universal. You look again at verse 3 and 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you've ever paid attention to Jesus' ministry and his preaching in the Gospels, what you will see is the centrality of repentance, and it has this kind of a a kick drum function. If you're somewhat decent with songs and music, it's like a four on the floor that's just driving the beat forward, keeping the music in time, keeping everything in harmony. And he continues to beat that drum because everyone is in sin. No matter your background, no matter your family, no matter your abilities, no matter your personality, no matter your skills, no matter your vocation, no matter your money, no matter your lack thereof money, you are in sin. Man's sin is universal. It's one of the hardest truths for a modern man in the West to hear, but it is consistent throughout Scripture, that we are conceived and born in sin. Thus, we are by nature children of wrath, which means we have a problem. So repentance is necessary because man's sin is universal. Repentance, secondly, is necessary because God's judgment is dreadful. Look again at verse 3 and 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. To die at the hands of a, a bloody despot is a terrifying thing. To die underneath the rubble of a collapsed tower is a terrible thing. And Jesus says, it's going to happen to you unless you repent. And so what I want you to know is what Jesus is meaning to do, among other things, is wake us up from our lethargy that's often marking our spirituality, this complacency that we have time to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. Surely it's no accident that this passage in every way corresponds and follows and functions as a conclusion to the imminent return of Jesus Christ in judgment. What must you do in light of his looming return? You must repent because God's judgment is dreadful. So students or kids, if you go to your school class tomorrow and you forget 
to, or maybe you forgot to have done your homework, you've left it at home, you don't have the ability to turn it in tomorrow, I would venture to say in all likelihood your teacher will give you another chance to turn it in. Or at least to get like partial credit for that missed assignment. And what Jesus is telling you here is that that will not happen at the day of judgment. You ought not to expect to stand before the king of the universe and say, well, just give me another chance. Because as the rest of the passage is going to prove out, he's given you an amazing number of chances to turn and repent, and you never seized them. So he won't give you one more. Repentance is necessary because man's sin is universal. God's judgment is dreadful. Then he goes on to tell us in verses 6 through 9 about the necessity of evidence. Some of you may be old enough to remember 30 years ago when prominent pastor and preacher John MacArthur published a book that was titled The Gospel According to Jesus. It stirred up no small amount of controversy in the evangelical world. It was a controversy that even reverberated in our Presbyterian circles just about six or seven years ago as there was this online debate regarding sanctification that was raging. And in that original preface to MacArthur's book in 1988, A Presbyterian preacher named James Montgomery Boyce said that MacArthur has effectively answered what is the greatest weakness of contemporary evangelical Christianity in America. So in Boyce's mind, 30 years ago, what was the greatest weakness in evangelical Christianity in America? It was the belief that emanated out from our city and a seminary in this city that said... You could repent of your sin, never bear fruit in Christ, and still expect to be saved. That a fruitless Christianity is still salvation. And what Jesus is here to say is, it's not. That repentance must be proven by fruit. For look at what he says in a parable. First, he wants us to see the tree's lack of produce. Look at verse 6 and 7. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So this is normal in the agricultural time. Three years was more than enough for an owner to rightly expect fruit to have appeared on that tree. And so this owner sees the lack of produce on the tree. And he says, all right, it's time just to cut it up. It's proven that it's a dead tree. What does the tree represent? So students, when you look at parables like this, you often want to ask questions. What is Jesus trying to indicate in this kind of pictorial teaching? And I think what you need to know is that for the average Jew listening to Jesus at this moment, they would have been convinced he was talking about Israel. Because throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, Israel is depicted as a fig tree in the Lord's vineyard that needs to bear fruit. And often, God's utterings of judgment upon them is because they haven't borne any fruit. So I think the average Jew that's listening to Jesus' parable at this moment is just hearing what they've heard from prophets for centuries gone by, that we have to repent, we have to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance if we're going to actually be saved. So you want to see the tree's lack of produce, but you secondly want to see the vine dresser's plea. Because look at what we see in verse Eight, the vine dresser says, Sir, let it alone this year also 
until I dig around it and put on manure. And I'm in every way convinced that the vine dresser here is meant to represent none other than Jesus Christ and his intercession for his people. Because what we find, one of the richest truths throughout the New Testament is that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for his own. Daily pleading with the Lord for them. And we come in here this morning, you come in here this morning, I come in here this morning, not bearing the spiritual fruit that we must. And that lack of bearing spiritual fruit deserves God's punishment. But Jesus says, Lord, give them more time. Let my spirit work within them that they might indeed bear fruit that keeps with repentance. You're meant to see something of a shadow of the majestic work of Jesus Christ and his pleading for more patience among his people. And so the vine dresser's plea, I do think, leads to the owner's patience. Look at verse 9. Then, the vine dresser speaking, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And it's, it's fascinating to me that it ends somewhat vaguely, this parable. Do you see that? We're not told if the owner says, yeah, go ahead. Try to fertilize it. Try to dig up the ground around the roots to pour in more water to loosen up the roots so fruit might grow. We're not told that happens. We're not even told if thus fruit would have come if the owner did say, yes, I'll give you another year's time. I do think the open-ended nature of the parable is meant to strike each one of us this morning to consider ourselves before the Lord in hearts of self-examination. Because God has not taken you home yet. Because he means for his forbearance and patience to lead you to repentance, as Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says. So if repentance is necessary because man's sin is universal, God's judgment is dreadful, why is evidence of that repentance necessary? I think we can say two things related to that as well. First, A mere profession of faith is worthless without a production of fruit. A mere profession of faith is worthless without a production of fruit. And you'll see this most strikingly in John the Baptist's preaching all the way back in Luke chapter 3. You can go read it later on today and see how it harmonizes with our perfect Lord's teaching in our passage today. Because John comes forth preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. These people that were prone to rely on their parentage, prone to rely on their family identity before God. They're professing faith in Yahweh. But he says, you have not borne any fruit. And so it's why in that passage he says the axe is already at the root of the tree and it is ready to be cut down. Same kind of language we have here in the parable. A profession of faith is meaningless without a production of fruit. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, you'll know a tree by what? It's fruit. And the lack of it will show it is in fact no good tree, repentant tree after all. And that's why you want to see secondly, repentance And its evidence is necessary because where God extends privileges, he expects a production of fruit. When he extends privileges, he expects a production of fruit. You see this in Romans chapter 9 as Paul in verse 2 says, To the nation of Israel belong the promises, the covenants, the oracles, the adoption, the worship. And yet there was no fruit that followed from it. And so their punishment is going to be worse, is what Paul says. Jesus even said it last week at the end of Luke chapter 12. So just as I did last week, I want to speak specifically to you students or you children that are in here today being raised in a godly home. 
Uh, What you must know is that if you've received the covenant sign of baptism, God has placed his sign and seal upon you. If you are in a covenant godly home, you're being raised with his representatives of authority over your life. If you come to the church every Lord's Day, you have access to his means of grace, preaching, prayer, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints. He's pouring forth into your life privileges. He's extending you blessings and promises. And he expects by the Spirit's power that you will indeed bear fruit. And so it's a call, a sobering requirement even for our spiritual lives and trust in Jesus Christ and dependence on the Spirit that we would walk in those fruits of the Spirit that are listed in the New Testament. Yet we so fall short of it, don't we? The problem for most of us is no, we don't repent. No, we haven't borne essential fruit that God should expect from us. And so we do deserve God's judgment. We do deserve God's wrath. The furious flow of his righteous indignation should fall upon us. So what hope? Is there? The hope is, of course, found in none other than Jesus Christ. Because do you remember what happened with Christ at Calvary? He died on Passover week. His blood was mingled with the sacrifices. And it's your turning from sin and trusting in that perfect, precious blood of Jesus Christ that washes away your sin, brings forgiveness. You pass from death into life from condemnation into blessing, from bondage into freedom, given the gift of the Holy Spirit that you might indeed bear the fruits of the Spirit. Repentance is necessary. Its evidence is necessary because repentance is the only way that any person, any man, woman, boy, or girl, can escape the coming judgment that's due to you for your sin. So have you turned and trusted in this cleansing blood of Jesus Christ alone? Some of you know when you read through the Chronicles of Narnia series, you eventually get to the third book, or depending on your view of the debate, the fourth book, which is the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's a rather nasty boy that's at the central part of that story, at least for the first two-thirds of it, named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And C.S. Lewis even says in the book, and he almost deserved that name. (laughs) So eventually this adventurous party, they get to this island, course in the magical land of Narnia and there on that island is this wonderful treasure of gold but you're not supposed to touch it but Eustace and his greed can't keep his hands off of it so he touches it hoards it to himself in his greed and what happens to him do you remember he turns into a dragon and is made to suffer in that skin for a few days and eventually the great lion king Aslan comes to undragon him And as Eustace recounts that undragoning to his cousin, this is what he says. And consider if it doesn't capture the nature of biblical repentance. The lion said to me, and I don't even know if it spoke, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I lay just flat down on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of it falling off. Some of you know, repentance might be the most painful thing for you to go through. You are overthrowing, overturning 
worldly desires and ambitions that you once so cherished, but now you've seen a greater sight. So Christ in his mercy reaches in, takes away that old man of sin in your repentance, and gives you new clothes of righteousness, a new heart of the Spirit, a new will to obey Him. So there is agony in repentance, but there's ecstasy as well, because the only way that we will escape the judgment our sin deserves is if we repent of our sins. So if you want to put Jesus' words in verse 3 and 5 more positively, you know, negatively He's saying, if you don't repent, you'll perish. But what's the good news? If you repent, you won't perish, but you will live forever with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a God who is indeed patient, that You are rich in Your mercy towards us, that we who deserve even judgment today as we sit in Your presence and come to worship you, you are delighted to give us time to come to Christ. Lord, we know we are not promised forever, and so help us to close with Christ today if we haven't yet done it, to depend on the Spirit that we might bear fruit that does display our trust in Christ and and vindicate our repentance towards Him. Help us even as a church body to never stray far from this message of the centrality of repentance that we would find it to be true in our homes, we'd find it to be true in this church, we'd find it to be true in our neighborhoods, that we are actively engaged in repenting of our sin and clinging to Christ alone by faith. So give us life, we pray, through your Son, Jesus, and we ask it in His name. Amen.